my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here, and it's really great to be with you. Um, I want to start with a question, okay? What topic can make happy hour with colleagues uh, quickly very awkward? Uh, what topic can, you know, destroy friendships and also get you censured at work and even make complete strangers feel like enemies? One word, religion. <laughs> you start talking about religion and things can get a bit hairy. You know, I took a trip with some friends of mine to New York uh, when I was in college and we were in this little pizza shop in New York City. Why? Because who doesn't want to have a slice of New York style pizza, uh, you know, in an authentic New York style shop. And while we were there, you know, I get my pizza and I'm sitting at the table and I have this like iconic moment. I just love pizza and I couldn't wait for this moment. So I, then I close my eyes to pray because for, for two reasons. One, I need to thank God for this little slice of heaven. And then secondly, I have to ask for his mercy that he somehow helps my body digest all this greasy goodness. So I have like this silent moment and then I open my eyes, you know, the pizza's right there, can't wait. And I look up and across the small little shop, there's an elderly lady, like the, the driving Miss Daisy elderly lady kind of person, sitting over at a table all by herself. And she just says something like, I haven't seen someone pray before a meal in forever. You aren't one of those like bigoted fundamentalists, are you? You know, <laughs> so it, I, I remember... <laughs> I remember sitting there and kind of like looking around, and it was a small spot. I was like, surely she's not like talking to me, and, but, but she's like staring right at me. And, and so I just, I just wanted to eat my pizza, you know. I just wanted to have my moment. I've been waiting for this. I've been praying about it, right? Um, but instead I go over and I, and I talk to her for a little bit. My pizza gets cold. There's a whole thing, right, that happens. Um, but, you know, I think back on that moment, and I can't blame her. Not really, because there's been, whenever you think about religion, or a lot of times when we think about religion, when it enters into the public square, into public period, it's usually accompanied with anger, picket signs, and bloodshed. Like Ricky Gervais, this atheist comedian, the guy who made the British office like really popular, right? On his Twitter, this is what he writes. He said, bored of watching atheists argue over religion on Twitter. Turn on TV and watch religious people kill over it in real life. You know, and he's hitting on something because throughout history, religion has been used for all kinds of violence when it enters the public square. When you think about priests, pastors, imams, whatever religious leader you want to put in that blank, they've used God has told me to, to justify a lot of evil, a lot of suffering, a lot of schism, a lot of pain in order to gain power. And then after 9-11, more people than ever are afraid of any sort of public religion that claims a sort of exclusivity about it, an exclusive pathway to truth. And they're afraid that it's going to ultimately, inevitably lead to violence, that it'll lead to a Charlottesville-style kind of hate in the name of Jesus, no less. And so is it any surprise that we live in a culture, that we live in a city, where we often hear, where we're expected to, to live and believe that religion should be kept private. Religion should be kept private. I mean, we've all heard it said, right? You know, Sundays, you can do your thing, or Saturdays, you can do your thing. But when you get to work, when you show up in the polls, when you engage in friendships, just keep it to yourself because your religion 
should just be kept private and let's just keep it that way. And that's what most of us, I think, choose to do. Almost, and listen, there's not condemnation coming from up here on that. I think we live into that because we'll come to see that there are some things about that that resonate about reality, about the way that the world works. But are we still missing something here? Yeah, there's been some terrible things done in the name of religion when it steps into the public square, when it steps into public reality and relationships and the workspace. But is this the answer or is it at least the, is it the full answer? That's the question I want to ask this morning. I mean, even as this idea that, that religion should be left in the exclusivity of our private lives, is that a story worth living? Now, if you're new with us, we've been walking through a series where we're kind of pressing these cultural assumptions we have. We hear these, we live these, we, we've been sold these ideas and we buy into them and we live into them without even realizing it half the time. It's, it's, it almost becomes this gut level reaction of, of course this is the way it should happen. And these kinds of stories, stories like we've seen so far of be true to yourself or hashtag YOLO, right? We talked a little bit about that, which some of you are like, I can't believe Gabe just did that, but that's totally, you know. We, we, we've talked about, you know, or we will be talking about you do you. Like some of these, uh, these, these, these stories that we hear, that we buy into, that we live into, and just feel like that's the way life is. And this is so important because we're trying to tap into how these stories form us as individuals, how they form us as communities, how they form us as cities, and even a country. Because nothing is more important than the story you tell yourself, the story you've adopted about what is true, about what's real in the world, and what's worthwhile, right? And as we come as the people of God, or at least asking questions of God this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, the good news is that God hasn't left us to navigate these questions and navigate these stories on our own. Thankfully, he's given us the whole of Scripture, but especially the book of Genesis. This is the first book in the Bible, and it was written to just, it was given us, written to give us just a story, a story that's kind of like a touchstone of all the other stories we hear in our lives and in culture. And so today, today we're asking a question about this story off of the touchstone of Genesis. Religion should be kept private. What, is that true? Is there parts of that that resonate with the way in which the world actually works, the way in which we've been wired? Is there parts of it that, that, that fails? And is there a better alternative? So those are the questions we're going to be teasing out this morning. Religion should be kept private, question mark. Okay, so let's take a look together. Turn with me in your Bibles or Bible apps to Genesis, the book of Genesis. And as we've mentioned each week, look, this is a huge topic. Books, tomes, like series of books have been written on this topic, so we're not clearly going to answer every question about this and dive into every detail, but we want to encourage what are the, the questions that are most pressing on your heart? You can text those in to this number here, and, and we have some folks that are going to be teasing those out and helping answer some of those questions on Facebook Live, keeping the conversation going tomorrow. So, and that'll be on our Facebook page. So if that's something, you've got a question that's burning, please text it in to that number throughout the sermon, after the sermon, tomorrow when you're taking a break at work, whatever, um, we want to be helping the conversation go further. Good? Well, with that, let's turn to Genesis. Um, and here's what we come to see about this cultural story. Religion should be kept private. That there is something that resonates with what's true 
in the world. There is something about this statement that actually intersects with the way in which we've been designed and the way in which God works in the world. And here it is. When we hear religion should be kept private, we see that for God, yes, religion must be private. It has to be very personal. Whenever religion is coercive, whenever it's manipulative, whenever it seeks to force something, it leads to a, a series of abuses. Instead, it must be embraced in the privacy of your own heart, mind, and conscience. I mean, think about what it, what's the greatest commandment that Jesus affirms. What's the greatest commandment that Jesus affirms? It's a call to what? Here's how it begins. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. All of your heart. And then it goes on to the soul, mind. And when you, get into, when you look in Deuteronomy, it goes heart, soul, mind, and strength. It has this outward movement of concentric circles that it's this inside-out movement. It has to be embraced in the privacy of your heart, mind, and conscience. And we see the roots of this right here in our story in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. You see, we cannot even understand ourselves as image bearers of God without personal engagement with Him. If we understand who we are, we are image bearers of God. We cannot even understand ourselves without personally engaging God. Because it's not just a checklist form kind of living. It's not just forming to a mold. Instead, we live into who we've been made to be when we personally walk with God and trust God. Religion, it has to be private. It has to be. And this has major implications on how you view religion throughout the world, right? It means, for one thing, that you aren't religious or quote-unquote saved just because your parents had really strong faith or you grew up in a nation that held to a particular faith or a culture or a denomination, It wasn't because you could school everybody in religious jeopardy, you know, I'll take, you know, justification for 500, Trebek, you know, like that's not going to make it for you. No, I mean, look at Genesis chapter 2. God makes Adam and Eve. They have the best lineage ever. God is literally their father forming them, their teacher in terms of structures in place and the privilege they have. Adam and Eve have the Garden of Eden surrounding them. They're not these infrastructures of injustice continually seeking to move them towards cycles of destruction. Adam and Eve even have the right God that they're relating to. They had all the right pieces in all the right places, but because they didn't personally trust God, they brought destruction on themselves, to those around them, and those after them. Religion, it has to be private. It has to reside in the secret and hidden places of the heart. And Jesus follows this thread. This isn't just like something that started with Jesus. It's not something that just was in Genesis and Jesus did something different. You see a cohesiveness in the biblical story. And Jesus, he falls right in here and he says, even in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hammers home the importance of the heart. Not just doing the right things or saying the right things or or being in the right place, but for Jesus, what's going on in the privacy of the heart is of first importance. So for example, when everyone else seems concerned about just holding murder at bay, Jesus is concerned about hidden anger. Like this hidden anger that consumes you as a person. When traditional society is just content about avoiding adultery, Jesus goes after private lust. Lust. 
the consuming of other people in the privacy of our own imaginations. And then when you get to what many of us consider pious activity like prayer and service, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Very public. But it seems to be missing something private. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Jesus, he's surrounded by the people of Israel here. I mean, of all people who have confidence in their lineage, their denomination, their temple, their scriptures, it was them. They are the people of Abraham, the promised one. And yet Jesus affirms our design revealed back in Genesis that true religion must be private. We must personally deal with God before we try to deal with anyone else. So yes, religion must be private. Anything less than that, it doesn't get religion at all. But, so I want to say yes to this. This is really important. But there, there's, there's a problem. You see, when you personally engage God and when you invite him to shape the privacy of your heart, your mind, your conscience, that kind of religion can't stay private. It's right there in the very greatest commandment. Once again, returning to that, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's this movement of outward concentric circles such that in the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. This is just a greater movement of those concentric circles. It's this heart-centered movement out. And if it doesn't go out, it has an indictment on what's within. It's personal and engages the privacy of our hearts. It must, but it won't stay there. It can't. And that's when this religion should just stay private, starts to fall apart. You see, I feel like our society is kind of a spurned lover. Um, some of you are like, where is this going, right? A spurned who in their pain has chosen to give up all relationships. I'm just going to get a cat and I'm going to deal with it, right? That's okay. And, and I get it. Like I said, thoughtful people have embraced the need for religion to remain private because some stupid stuff has been done in the name of public religion. But at the end of the day, religion can't stay private. I mean, think about it. What is religion? Now, when that question is asked, often we, we answer with examples of organized religion. Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam. But those are examples. They're not the definition of what is religion. What is religion itself? A religion, here it is, a set of claims about what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful? These claims, religious claims, are beliefs about what leads to human flourishing or what leads to human suffer suffering. And everyone, whether you're a part of an organized or disorganized religion, um, they have these claims. Yes, atheists and agnostics have religious claims, which is why no one's religion can ever stay private if they ultimately have implications about human suffering or human flourishing, this is absolutely impossible. The moment we decide anything within society, our religion comes to bear. For example, as a society, how do we care for the poor and vulnerable? How do we decide who is poor? Who is vulnerable? I'm of the religious conviction that the unborn should be considered part of the, the poor and vulnerable. Can you show me a more silenced voice than the voice of the unborn, who literally can only be heard by ultrasound. Can you picture someone more vulnerable than a baby who breathes, eats, drinks, and survives off of another human being? 
such that if that is cut off, then their very breath is cut off. But many in today's society would not consider the unborn as either one, a human being, or two, a human being worthy of human rights. So what is true? And this gets very religious very quickly. Are the unborn humans or not? And what number do they become humans and stop being medical waste and it starts becoming murder? Where does that line, where does it get marked? And why? This is a very religious claim as to whether or not these are humans or not. And, and what is good? Should they have human rights or not? You see, our society is so fragmented and so frustrated because it fails to recognize that we all work from a religious framework, every single one of us. And I think we're afraid to admit that because then we'd have to admit that when we say religion should be kept private, what we often mean is that your religion should be kept private. And listen, Christians and non-Christians are guilty of that. I'm not pointing the finger. I'm making an observation about us. Not an us versus them, but us. Just saying you want a secular society so that people with various faiths can dwell together in peace, that's a very religious claim about what leads to human flourishing, about what is good, what is true. We all have claims about what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what leads to our friends, our family members, our loved ones, our enemies flourishing or suffering. Every single one of us. We're all religious and religion cannot stay private. It starts private, it must be private, but it can't stay private. And this, we have to be very transparent here, has always been true for Christianity. You see, the Christian religion can't stay private. And I know some people say, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. Come on. Like in the very definition of the framework, what we often mean by that is it's me and Jesus, which is not true, okay? It is personal, but it's not so private that it excludes others in our lives. We're talking about this is both a religion and a relationship. These are a set of claims about the way in which the world works and the way in which God works in the world that also includes a relationship. Any understanding of Christianity that limits it to a Sunday morning or my private time is both biblically illiterate and historically inaccurate. So here are the hints, I think, that are all the way back in the beginning of Genesis here. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 15, that follows this beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden in which God places humanity. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Two things human beings are called to do in the garden, right? We've looked at these verbs over the past couple of weeks. To work it, that sounds funny to say out loud, to work it and keep it. I mean, how, okay, so how is that a hint, right? How is that a hint to what we're talking about? Great question. Here, here's, these two verbs, they show up again, and in of all places, in Exodus, the second book in God's story, when talking about building the tabernacle to work it and keep it. The tabernacle is where God uniquely dwelt with his people in the midst of a broken world. What does this mean? Scholars They've highlighted how the Garden of Eden was kind, a kind of temple. God dwelt with humankind, and, and there was no like, let's go to church on Sunday or go to tabernacle on Saturday, and then we can get on with the rest of life outside. No. Instead, everywhere Adam and Eve went, they were in the presence of God. The Garden of Eden was a temple, but it didn't stay that way. Adam and Eve tried to push God out of his own temple, 
And of course, that's when the world starts to feel empty. Doesn't it make sense? Where he was meant to reside there and now being pushed out starts to feel empty, starts to feel painful. And the world, the first temple, breaks. But God knew this was going to happen. And his story was not to end there. He wasn't scrambling to figure out a plan. God wasn't done yet. His plan to restore his world begins with a guy named Abraham. You know, God invites Abraham to, to know him, to walk before him. He actually does this invitation, walk before me and be blameless. Like, come and be with me. An invitation back to the garden. He tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a nation. And you've got to be thinking, why is he going to do this? Like, why make Abraham into this nation? And God says in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in, all of you, all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is after his world. And now God's people become the conduit by which he now is dwelling and engaging and seeking the world. And Abraham's offspring become known as the nation of Israel. And Israel becomes this avenue of blessing, the world. Jump forward a few thousand years. I know that's a big jump, but hang with me. Um, and Israel fails over and over and over again and come to realize we, they need a leader. They need a king who's going to remain on the throne. And so we get to Jesus, the rightful Messiah of Israel, God's people in whom he dwells. The Christ, Emmanuel, now Christ becomes God with us. We see this in John chapter 1. Literally, the language is that God became flesh. He tabernacled among us. And yes, he came to die for us but also to start something, to do something. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, I'll tell you, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you've heard this passage before, and you've talked about this passage with anyone before, you know this is a pretty hotly debated passage. What is that rock? Why is he talking about Peter? Like, what's going on there? And, and I get that. We can talk about that another day. The point that Jesus is, what we often miss because we find ourselves diving into these details, is what Jesus is saying is, look, I am starting a church, a church that is pushing back and storming down the gates of hell and death. I, I'm co I've come to die, yes, but I'm coming to start something, starting a people. Are you following the story so far? God moves from the garden to Abraham, then to Israel, to Jesus, the Messiah of that nation. And now through everyone who aligns themselves with this Messiah, everyone who aligns themselves with this Messiah, Jesus, God has come to dwell among the church in a unique way. That is both Jew and Gentile. And when you get to Ephesians 2, Paul writing to the local churches in the first century, he makes this point explicit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, he says, In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is temple language, folks. This is tabernacle language. This is Eden-esque kind of language where God is dwelling in a unique way among his people. It's reminiscent of everything we've seen in the story up to this point and uniquely present in the local church. Yes, he's present in individuals as we're commissioned into our work. We talked about that last week. But uniquely present when the living stones are together in the local church and his presence is working publicly in the community of the church. The Christian religion 
can't stay private. It's in its very design. This isn't a private ordeal. It doesn't just have private effects and personal lives. No, Jesus says just as much in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when talking with the disciples. He says, you, the church, which will eventually, this becomes a bit of a mission statement, we, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's not a very private act. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Not like the earth is going to come to an end. That's not the point. But like to every single square and inch of the earth. To see and to know Jesus Christ. To experience his presence in your life. To personally trust God. Then then naturally flows into a public witness. Public religion. It changes the way you see everything. And how can you live or even love the same once you've met Jesus? Once he comes to dwell among you individually and you're a part of his community where he uniquely dwells, the local church. But we need to hit the pause button, right? Um, Because we've all seen misplaced zeal. We've all seen places where people are thoroughly convinced and even have really great intentions and do unspeakable harm. How does knowing this, like experiencing this, keep us from arrogance How can we hold to the claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation and wholeness and also keep from coercion, keep from violence, keep from schism in the name of a greater good? Remember what Ricky Gervais said. Bored of watching atheists argue over religion on Twitter. Turn on TV and watch religious people kill over it in real life. But wasn't Stalin an atheist? Didn't he kill tens of millions of people? Pol Pot, didn't he have, did he have an organized religion? He didn't. And didn't he kill around three million people? You see, the problem isn't religion by what we often mean. And the question isn't, do you have truth claims? The question is, what are your truth claims and what do they lead to? At its heart, when it comes to the Christian religion, in its truest sense, here, you need to understand this, the Christian religion suffers for all in public. The local church, key part of our mission is that we suffer for one another in public. And then that kind of community leads us to go and suffer for others. You see, at the center of Christianity, the central claim that sets us apart from every other religious claim is that God sent his son Jesus, the Christ, to die for his enemies in public. That's his movement towards his enemy, is death. That the son made a way to pay for the wrongs of his enemies, to forgive his enemies through horrific death on a cross. And then Jesus invites his enemies to receive him, to be forgiven, and then of all things to come and eat with him. Come sit at my table. Yes, I know you just murdered me, but come sit at my table. And now for all who embrace him to learn to then eat with each other. No matter how different we may be and no matter how different sometimes we view different perspectives on issues. While there are many who are ready and willing to kill, to tear down, to fight for truth claims, as Christians, our religion, when it goes public, it looks a lot like a cross. And not... Not coming with a cross to slay others, but a cross that we die on for those 
whom we disagree. So what's your religion? Your truth claim? What does it look like out in the open? Does it look like a cross? Some would say that religion should be kept private, but as much as religion is personal, it can't stay private. And of all the religions out there, of all of them, isn't Christianity a public religion worth living? When you start seeing that at the center, sure, we have a long way to go as a local church, as a campus. Um, it's messy, it's hard, it's confusing sometimes. Maybe more times than I care to admit. But where else is this presence uniquely felt than among his people? Where else is the gospel on display than among his church? Where else can you find love that will engage long-suffering for you, for me, for those who have hurt you? What other truth claims tells the world it's worth dying for, suffering for, and then says, come and eat? You're welcome at the table. It's here at the Lord's table where men and women who were once strangers remember we're family. It's here at the table we remember that Jesus' suffering and death is at the center. It's here at the table we're invited to show this bread of life with the world. Is that the Christianity you've been living? Isn't this a religion worth making public? Why would anyone want to keep that private? Let's pray.